Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Well, tonight is the book of Revelation. This is session 50, entitled, The Great Multitudes of the Final Generation. I want to stress that S in multitudes, the multitudes of the final generation. And what we want to do in this session tonight is we want to talk about the nations that are in the balance in the last generation. We're going to really focus on this multitudes idea because it's a theme that the book of Revelation gives maybe more attention to than we're thinking. I mean, there is so many, there are so many references to the multitudes the nations, the whole of humanity on the earth, the focal point of the book of Revelation, you actually have to like see it as a dual focus. The focus is the purposes of Jesus for the multitudes. Now, a lot of times we think about the book of Revelation and we would think about, you know, Jesus's battle plan, Jesus's strategies, but I'm telling you those strategies are related to God so loved the world. They're related to mankind. And when you read the book of Revelation, and we're going to do it through a lens tonight of seeing the multitudes that Jesus is after, seeing the multitudes that the Antichrist is after, seeing the multitudes of people in the last generation, it's a a gripping moment. It's a bit of a fear and trembling when you start to think about the vast numbers that are hanging in the balance But there's a battle for the hearts and the affections of mankind, the destiny, the eternity of man, the multitudes. And it's it's the battle at the end of the age for the human heart. It's really intense. It's a really intense thought process and one that I want us to be able to grapple with. Because here's what I'm hoping tonight will do for us, this session. I'm hoping it will enable us to read the book of Revelation from more of a humans in the balance thought process as we're reading. So it's not just events, and this angel said this, and this thing happened. It's, these things are going to be happening to people. (laughs) Billions of them. (laughs) Billions and billions of people, each one created in the image of God that God cares about that one, and the one next to him, and the family that comes from that one, and their neighbors, and the people they met on Facebook. I mean, God cares about these people, and the devil wants their soul. And the book of Revelation is this really intense battle over the multitudes of human hearts. It's a, it is a battle. It's an intense, uh, intense battle. So, uh, part A, this unusual hour of human history to understand the profoundness of what's happening, the, the battlefield of the human heart across uh, the nations. The level of pursuit... And the expression of that pursuit from both God and the devil has probably never been so overt or felt in a generation. The the pursuit of God for humanity and the pursuit of Satan after those same hearts. The pursuit and the expression of that pursuit has never been so loud. I mean, what's going to be happening and the ways it's going to be expressed, there's so many ways, that the, all of humanity. You know, there are things that God has done in secret 
that were for the human race that no one knew about. The generation that the Lord returns, both the devil and God are going to be doing things out in the open that everyone can see, which are a battle for the human heart. It is going to be an intense battle for the multitudes. The human race will be tested. The allegiance of man will be tested. Every human heart. Part of what we need to be readying ourselves for, and I just want to give an advertisement right now in the midst of difficulties in our nation. We need to be getting a vision for how to hold our hearts focused on Jesus. Despite the difficulties around us, we do not deny there are difficulties around us. But despite them, we need to be a people that are focused on Jesus and his purposes far more than whatever narrative is happening around us. And many, many things are happening around us. And I have no doubt that the Lord has great desires and purposes all scattered throughout. We've got to keep our hearts focused on Jesus. The final generation will be the most tested, will be the most tried, will be the most distracted, will be the most enticed, and will be the most motivated even by the Lord. And we have got to be a people that are looking at, I'm telling you, when you're starting to talk about everything turning to blood and and giant hailstones, 100 pounds, firing out of the sky and landing on men, our current troubles are light and momentary. Okay, when we're talking about by comparison to what is coming, we need to be a people that learn how to get rooted and grounded in level one difficulties because level 100 difficulties are coming and we will not hold our hearts worth diddly squat in level 100 difficulties if we've not figured out how to do well with 1, 2, 10, and 20. So we need to be looking at this, everything that's going on, we need to be looking at this as training ground, testing of the human hearts. Steady ourselves, steady ourselves. We need to be those that are not easily bothered by anything, who are steady and steadfast and are filled with love and grace. Love and grace for mean people. Love and grace for silly people. Love and grace for ourselves. Love and grace. We need to be filled with love and grace because I'm telling you, the enemy is after the human heart. And the way he's going to get to it is offense. He is going to cause offense. And that is how he's going to win the day. And offense can arise from many reasonable reasons. Because this thing was bad, this thing was wrong, this person did this. We cannot allow ourselves to go into the narrative of offense. And there is a great battle that we are already in, but it is kindergarten by comparison to where we are headed. The importance of the multitude, part B. I believe this is an important theme in the book of Revelation, this idea of the multitudes. It keeps showing up again and again. I didn't give you every verse, but I gave you probably 40 or 50 Verses in the book of Revelation that are talking about this multitude, these multitudes, because there's actually a couple of three different camps. The largest generation, I want us to think about this. Now, this could be said of other generations, but it keeps getting said at this point. And that is, the final generation will be the largest generation to ever walk the the planet. Furthermore, when you add up the total sum of all of human history and the population of human history... The final generation will have more humans alive in one moment than the entirety of human history collective. It's shocking. But if you just think about it, if 
two, me, two people make more people, and then those people make more people, and more people make more people, more people. It makes sense that you finally hit a point where if everybody just makes one baby, you double the population in a moment. You know what I mean? That kind of a concept. And so you can do the math. I mean, this is not a, you know, it's not like a really smart uh, thought process or something unheard of. The final generation will be larger than the total sum of all of human history together. This makes it a very important generation. It's also going to be the greatest generation, not just because of the number, but because of the trial, because of the difficulty that this generation is going to find itself in. It is going to be an intense hour of human history, and God and Satan are both aimed and are going to labor for the hearts of men in the final generation. From different perspectives, in different ways, through different avenues, but after the hearts of men, the affections of a generation, the multitudes, unprecedented times. The vastness of this generation, it's a subject that in the word, uh, in the book of Revelation specifically, the word as well, but in the book of Revelation, a ton of times, the statement, the people from every nation, tribe, uh, people and language is frequently repeated. It's a frequently repeated theme in the book of Revelation, as well as all the nations or the whole earth. All these things are communicating the same thing. It's not talking about dirt. I mean, it's a off reference to the actual dirt. It's talking about the people that are on that dirt, the multitudes. This is a, a major subject in the book of Revelation. Another point I want to make, as we're going to start looking at these multitudes, the book of Revelation assumes a scenario that in previous generations could not have been felt or perceived, and that is the globalization of the planet. Here's what I mean by that. Just think about even a hundred years ago, how slow it took for news to travel and how so much of the earth was disconnected to all those news outlets anyway. The book of Revelation over and over assumes a singular narrative for the planet. That the whole planet is experiencing something. The whole planet has never experienced anything except the flood. You realize that? I mean, experienced in a way that they knew happened. Okay? The whole planet has not been in a common conversation since the flood. And at that point, they didn't all know they were in the same conversation. You got these people drowning over there and these people drowning over there and they don't know what's happening on the other side of the planet. We're talking about a really unusual thought process. The book of Revelation assumes a scenario where the world will be experiencing the same narrative at the same time across the whole planet. That's never even been possible before because up until very recently, you couldn't even know what was happening on the other side of the planet. You would, and especially not in any sort of timely manner. The news gets here three months later. <laughs> it's like, we're talking about an hour where something happens, an earthquake happens in, you know, in the Pacific, and everybody on the planet knows it within an hour. You know, I mean, it's really an interesting time period. We're living in a time, and the book of Revelation continually talks about the concept of a planet experiencing a global reality together. And that requires a very interesting time frame with some very interesting specifics. I'm going to give you a couple of the pieces of the multitudes. 
and then uh, a couple of categories, and then we'll jump into some specifics. And I'm not sure how deep into detail we're going to get in each one of these categories, but we'll at least cover each category so that you've kind of got a, thought, a uh, start, uh, starting point on the thought process. First, the several different groups. <clears throat> sometimes when the book of Revelation is describing a multitude, sometimes it's referring to the number of those that will give their lives to the Lord in the final generation. Sometimes that's what the great multitude is referring to. Sometimes it speaks of those that will fall under the harlot Babylon's influence. Sometimes it refers to those that will follow the Antichrist. Sometimes, in other references, it refers to the fullness of mankind on the earth at the time of the unfolding of these events. So when you're talking about the multitudes or the nations or every people, tribe, and language, you need to look at the context a little bit because it can actually be referring to the good guys, the bad guys, the all guys, the bad guys that go that way, the bad guys that go that way. I mean, it can be talking about a couple of different groups. So this concept of multitudes, because certainly the multitudes that love Jesus and the multitudes that follow the Antichrist are not the same multitudes. It's important that we understand this subject of the multitudes, just even that idea. The multitudes, the countless number that will do this, the countless number that will do that. In the balance are the billions of souls on the earth at the time of the Lord's coming, in the generation that leads up to his coming. That's intense. That is an intense subject. You know, in every other generation, it's like there was never the final test. Every other generation there never had the final test. We've been building up humanity from all of creation, and especially since the cross, we've been building up towards this moment that's the final test for humanity, where everybody takes the test all at the same time. There's never been a time like that before. There's never been a time where in a very short period of time, every person's eternal fate was decided was dealt with, was assessed, was walked into. Every other time in human history, it's been one at a time. One person goes on the journey of life and then eventually dies. There's never been a generation that doesn't die. There's never been a generation like that. Do you realize the final generation, all of those who love the Lord, who don't die before he comes, they don't die. They get resurrected. There's never been a generation that didn't die before. Everybody dies, except the final generation. This is a very unique hour, and we need to understand the Lord's eyes are on this generation. Now think back to the statement I made earlier about the total sum of human history and how many people there were in the time of this age, in the time of this hour, in the time of this generation, in, in Hezekiah's day, and David's day. You put them all together. And there's fewer humans in that group of people than there is alive on the planet in the final generation. You put all that together and you go, the Lord is going to make good on all the promises in the word and will actually impact in real time more people in a moment than had he been doing that particular thing in every hour of human history prior. You catch that? There are Bible passages that have not been fulfilled yet, that when he fulfills them in the largest generation, there's nobody that could say you didn't do it. You impacted more people in 10 seconds 
then had you been doing that thing for hundreds or thousands of years? And we're walking into that generation. It hangs in the balance. There has never been a generation that the Lord had his eyes on more than the final. And as a result, never been one that the enemy had his eyes on more than the final. This is a wild time to be alive. And I want to tell you, I just want to go back again. We need to be thankful for trials before that final test. We need to be thankful that we get to learn how to hold our hearts and not be mean to each other. That we get to hold our hearts and hold true to Jesus even when the world loses its mind. We need to be thankful for lesser trials so that we got a chance to work that muscle a little bit. Because as we head towards the final trials, oh my goodness, we are going to be in deep dew. So prepare for deep dew. That's really the message tonight. Prepare for deep dew. All right. All right, I'm on page two. And again, I'm going to go fairly quickly here. <clears throat> Jesus is worthy to rule the nations. So what, what part two is, <clears throat> it's all the verses, not all of them. It's a chunk of verses in the book of Revelation that talk about this theme. The nations, but Jesus' worthiness to rule them. The worth of Jesus to rule the nations. Remember, the message tonight is on the multitudes in the final generation. So part two are verses that break down various components of the worth of Jesus to rule that multitude. Okay? And how does that look? First starts with the ruler of all creation. Jesus is more concerned about humans than he is grasshoppers and, you know, the plants. Though he cares about the grasshoppers and the plants. And that's part of it. He cares about the people. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. He is called the ruler of all creation. And we have not seen that enacted real time on planet earth. You know how you know when a, a ruler is ruling? You got the entire population, whether they like the ruler, don't like the ruler, they know his name and they know he's in charge. Now, maybe they've even got a coup on the side that they're going to try to overthrow that ruler. Right now, if you ask the majority of the earth, who's the ruler of the earth, you would get such a mixed bag of answers. I mean, it depends on where you're at geographically, probably. There is coming a time, however, where every single person on planet earth, if you ask them the question, who's the ruler of the earth? <laughs> Bro, where have you been? We talking about who's Jesus. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure he's right there. He's ruling. And there will be no question of who the ruler, the one ruler of it all is. There's coming a time. But right now, we're not in that hour. I mean, he, that is his title, but he has not yet walked in the fullness of what that means. There is coming a time, however, when he will. He's the ruler of all the kings. He's worthy to be the ruler of all the leaders. There will still be leaders in the next age. Jesus is really big on team ministry, on delegation. He's got that whole thing figured out. And there's going to be ruler kings, and he's going to rule those kings. He's going to be king of the nations. He's going to rule them. So I just wanted you to see that, specifically related to the, the nations being Jesus' inheritance and him being worthy of it, worthy of them as his inheritance, of, of them as his people, those that he will rule. But you know, there's a lot of people that are led by a king or a governmental you know, team or whatever that are led by that leader 
and may or may not appreciate that leader, but they don't worship that leader. <laughs> I mean, it's in our day and age, there's not too many, not none, but there's not too many corporate people that are worshiping their leader straight up worship, okay? Well, there is one, Jesus. Jesus isn't just worthy of the nations as his inheritance. He's worthy of the worship of those nations as his inheritance. I gave you a bunch of verses on that. That's part three. Part three is all about not just him being worthy of leadership and and jurisdiction, him worthy of the affections of the heart, worthy of worship. And you just go verse after verse. He's worthy of every tribe because he purchased them. He's worthy of all the nations, and all the nations will worship him. He's worthy of all those that come out of the tribulation. He's worthy of the great multitude in heaven. You just see over and over, they're ascribing worship and worth to him. And it's this multitude. It's this countless number that are giving him that worship because he's due it. So that's, that's another really intense component about this end time drama. We're moving towards a time period where the multitudes will worship him. I can't wait. I can't wait, but it's, you know what? His leadership is so different than the way you and I would do it. The way he is going to get global worship is he's going to bring the seals, trumpets, and bowls to the planet and the Antichrist. Let's make sure everybody's got a real option. The Lord is the one who's going to set all this up in order to get the truest worship that has ever been. Untested worship is not worth that much. You know, I just think about me at day one in Jesus, and man, it was real, but it was untested. That worship, I was like, I lift your name on high. You know, man, it was it was untested worship. Man, now I'm like, I lift your name on high. I got a little bit of fear and trembling when I sing it. It's tested, and more to come. He is going to have a tested people that have gone through that trial and that fire, and that worship will be sweet and valuable. Next, the multitudes that will fall into the sway of evil of the final generation. I don't know if you know this, but the final generation is described as the most heinous evil generation that has ever been. You you may not know the minor prophets, but there's a a passage in Haggai, Zechariah, which one's the one with wickedness? This is wickedness. Is that Haggai? Zechariah, Zechariah, yeah, Zechariah 4, I think. And it says, this is wickedness, and it's describing the fullness of evil at the end of the age. The fullness of evil. And this is what it says. It says, she's not yet ready, uh, kind of a woman coming up out of a basket, and this angel is pushing the woman back into the basket, said, take her until the time it's been prepared for her. Take her until the fullness of her wickedness has arisen. And it's describing the end of the age where wickedness will have reached its fullness. It's the harlot Babylon at the end of the age that we find in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. What's really intense about that, we're talking about a generation that Jesus is trying to squeeze the worship and the love and the adoration and the faithfulness and the authentic uh, you know, love for him out of. In that same generation, it will also be the most wicked generation ever. And so you see here in the book of Revelation, the harlot Babylon's influence over the nations. You see the Antichrist's influence over the nations. The multitudes turning to wickedness, 
turning even to Satan worship. I don't know if we'll put that together when we get to parts in uh, Revelation 13 about the Antichrist, but you need to understand this. The book of Revelation describes open Satan worship as the normal and the majority. Not just demon worship, which right now, I don't know too many people that worship straight up, worship demons. I know zero right now. Thank you, Jesus. But we're talking about not demon worship, Satan worship. Hi, Mr. Satan. I've come to bring my offering of praise today. The majority of the human race doing that. That is unthinkable. That's where we're headed. That's the generation we're talking about. In the balance. This is an intense hour we're heading into. The nations in the sway of evil. Great deception sweeping the nations. People will not worship Satan. People will not give themselves over to all the wickedness of the culture without great deception. Isaiah said it this way. People will call evil good and good evil. And they'll not do it. I mean, maybe some of the key leaders will do it to get people believing lies. But the majority of the people that are calling evil good in that hour and calling good evil will be doing it because they believe it. The majority. A generation where the masses will identify evil and say, that's a good thing, we need that. And will seek good and they'll say, that's wicked. Get rid of that. We need to get rid of that and we need to shut everybody up that's thinking and saying that. We need to put the kibosh on all that stuff. We're talking about a generation that is going to completely lost its mind. And it will be through great deception. Well, it talks about deception. In the book of Revelation, on the nations, the defiance of every tribe. It's unthinkable, but a time is coming when every people, tribe, language, and nation will knowingly shake their fists at God, not shake their fists at what is good, identify God and say, we don't like you, we don't like your plans, we know who you are, we know exactly who you are. We are talking about a crazy hour and the influence of evil in that generation. All right, let's go on to the next category. Part five, page five. The ministry to every nation. Now here's the, G, the, uh, the, the gist. The purpose of God for the last generation, in one sense, is the same as it always has been. He wants to reach people that were created in his image, that were created for him. You know, we weren't created for no reason. We're not a, a cosmic accident. Like this, we are the purpose of God. God made people, lost and saved. He made people for purpose. And in the final generation, he's just gonna, you know, up the ante. He's gonna increase the pursuit and make a strong ministerial effort. I mean, strategic ministry. Intentional, uh, like, a, a gospel campaign to get the planet into the kingdom. He's going to make the most intentional effort that has ever been made. It starts with one from the masses, one from the multitudes. All of heaven is searched. All of earth is searched. All the mankind on earth is searched for one who's found worthy to kick the, the, the thing off, to open the scroll. One is searched for. And it says, 
all of heaven was searched. All of earth, all of mankind on earth was searched for one that was worthy. And one was found worthy to open the scroll. And when the scroll gets opened, as Jesus has found the worthy one, he begins to open the scroll. You now have the multitudes impacted by this one that was found from the multitudes as the only one worthy. And so then kicks off the most intense hour of human history with both the judgments of God coming forth and the rage of Satan coming forth against those that stand against Satan. God is firing the seals, trumpets, and bowls at those that hate him. The Antichrist is firing oppression, aggression, and martyrdom at those that wage war against him. It is a wild hour, a fight. And during this fight, the forerunner ministry goes forth to every nation. It says in Revelation 10, verse uh, 8 through 11, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Describing the forerunner ministry and the proclamation of God's purposes and his truths in the final generation to the many different peoples, languages, and nations of the earth. This will be the ministry of the forerunner at the, at the end of the age in order to get out the message. If we can just get real simple on what the forerunner message is, it's the same exact message as the gospel with the timing of Jesus is coming in a minute. It's the same message. But I'm telling you what, the Jesus is coming in a minute is very unpopular. That component, the Jesus is coming in a minute has never been true until it happens. The Jesus is coming in a minute is a very, very specific aspect of the proclamation of the gospel message. And so we call it the forerunner ministry. John the Baptist had that ministry. It was to prepare the way for the Lord. But we're always preparing the way for the purposes of the Lord, every generation. But in Jesus' day and in the generation that Jesus returns, there's this forerunner ministry that's operating in the same heart of the Bible, the same heart of the gospel. But with the revelation... It's coming in a minute, and we need to talk about this a little bit differently. We need to prepare a little bit differently. He's coming. It's not just you need Jesus, you're going to die, and, and a decision will have been made during your life, heaven or hell. It's Jesus is going to show up on the planet. We need to be ready for him. He's coming. It's the wrap-up clause. The forerunner ministry will be going out in the nations of the earth. The gospel will be preached and presented to every tribe. There's an angel. This is the most bizarre thing. God is so jealous for humanity. There is actually an angel that will preach the gospel in the end times to 100% of the earth to make sure everybody heard it. There is an angel that holds the eternal gospel, and it says this, he goes to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to the, to the earth. How many? To every nation, tribe, language, and people. This angel will be dispatched once in, in the middle of this context to win the hearts of men, to teach the peoples about Jesus. The earth will be harvested in the midst of all this. It's the, the rapture of the church, the great harvest, the greatest harvest of souls. It's part of what's occurring. But it doesn't happen on another planet far, far away. It happens right in the middle of all the, the end-time drama, all the, all the war that's going on, this harvest of, of the righteous, the harvest at the end of the age where the wheat are brought into the barns, where Jesus brings forth the greatest number of, boom, you're mine, all in a moment. 
It's a powerful component of the book of Revelation. Every eye will see him. That's never happened before. There's coming a time where every eye will see Jesus with their eyes. Not like in their spirit or they'll have heard about it. They'll see him. Every eye will see him. There's never been a time like that. Every eye of the multitudes, of the nations, will see him. And the nations will receive their judgment. That's part six. I'm not going to go through the details of that. It's one that we've spent some time on already. And just so you know, next session, we're starting the trumpets. So we're going to jump into the trumpet judgments in uh, session 51. And so we'll get to that more. But just, there's a bunch of verses there. But I just want you to go and look at, find the term, the nations, every people, from every tribe, the multitudes. It's all over the book of Revelation. Because we're supposed to understand the book of Revelation is for the planet. The book of Revelation is a very troubling thing. I'll just give you this one verse. Revelation 3.10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. A trial to test the inhabitants of the earth, the whole world's population. Let's go to the last page and then we'll break into some discussion groups. The impact of the nations in the age to come. Page eight, number seven. The subject of the nations in the book of Revelation, the subject of the multitudes, the billions, even in the next age, the subject of the multitudes is reflected again and again in the book of Revelation. First, Satan's influence over the nations is cut off during the age to come. He's kept from deceiving the nations anymore, it says. Next, the shared authority with Jesus to rule the nations, given to some of the saints. All saints in one aspect, specific roles to a few. The nations shared authority. Jesus shares his authority to rule the nations with mankind. Revelation 21, 26. I'm sorry, Revelation 2, 26. In the next age, the nations, the multitudes, it says they're going to bring tribute to King Jesus. They're going to bring the best of their stuff to Jesus. Jesus is going to get stuff, earth stuff. It's not just in the book of Revelation. This is a, a, a thought process that's actually greater developed in the Old Testament prophets. But during his millennial reign, the kings of the earth are going to bring the best of their nations and bring it to King Jesus. That's right. That's good. I mean, we like that. That's a, that's a cool idea. But it's interesting that, it, I mean, it's in the word. The nations are going to bring their glory and the splendor of their nations. They're going to bring it to King Jesus as a tribute. The nations will walk by the light of the new Jerusalem. In the next age, the new Jerusalem, heaven, is going to be in close enough proximity to the earth that it's going to operate like a sun. But the light source isn't light. The light source is Jesus. This is the craziest, most incredible idea, and we'll develop it later in a later session. But the nations will walk by its light. The multitudes of the earth, the nations will walk by the light of the new Jerusalem. They will see its light. It says that when it comes, it will be brighter than the sun. 
This is going to be like the way that it's reflected on the earth. The light source, which is Jesus, inside of it, is going to be lighting the earth. That's profound. And then also something about the healing of the nations in some leaves from a tree. All right. Uh, why don't we start, Luke, with your question over there. <clears throat> so the question is, uh, the title, Jesus is the King of Kings, uh, what, what exactly does that mean? How does that uh, flesh out in the next age? And is he right now the King of Kings? So, yes, he is, but there's a lot of aspects of who he is that are real but are not yet um, uh, expressed. There's a significant amount I mean, just think about this. Even the revelation of Jesus, the bridegroom. That revelation was, was always who God was, but it wasn't one that was known before Jesus and really even John the Baptist came and made that revelation of who he is known. So there are aspects of who he is that are always, that are part of his eternal nature, but that just have not yet been expressed. And I'll, I'll go this far I'm confident a million years from now, we'll be finding out other titles about him that we have yet had no clue were real and were always in there. So what does it look like to be the king of kings in its, uh, in its expression on the earth? A time is coming where every nation, and maybe Jesus is going to change the geography a little bit. In fact, I would just guess for, for justice reasons he will. But at some, when he comes back, there's going to be nations in the next age. Are those nations going to be the exact geographic nations that we have now? Maybe. Again, I think there's probably going to be some lines moved around a little bit. But the point is, there's still going to be a bunch of nations. Is it 250? Is it a million? Is it five? There's still going to be nations, and each one of those nations is going to have a king, a human king. And that king is the king over that nation, but Jesus is the king over that king as well as the other king and the other king and the other king. He is the king of kings. And he will actually, in a real reporting structure, there will be real governmental king of kings uh, in, in a similar way that like districts in Texas uh, all report to the governor, okay? And it's like there's going to be the districts of the earth called the nations and the kings of those nations reporting to the top king, Jesus, king of kings. Great question. All right, Andy in the back. If this generation is the final and that means it's the greatest and that means we're supposed to prepare differently, how does the preparation process look different for the final generation than all the previous generations when all the previous generations had the same Bible that the final generation has? Fair enough? Yeah. So uh, the, I think it has a whole lot to do with the sobriety and, and the severity of taking it um, uh, uh, to heart of actually applying it. Um, so if you ever hear me say this generation needs to prepare differently than the previous, part of that is actually even a slight, it wasn't intentional, but now I'm cornered, was even a slight uh, judgment of the previous generation's lack of preparedness. I mean, There's a, a lack of severity, a lack of sobriety, but but it's difficult to take the end times seriously and to put in the adequate preparation when the signs of the times that are intended to indicate you're in that hour haven't yet happened. 
So part of it is even the Holy Spirit's drafting provocation, like this, it's, it's, it's written into the plan that there's this provoking of the generation that's actually going to experience it, and that provoking is the signs of the times being fulfilled. And so it's supposed to actually then provoke the final generation to walk in the preparation that's required for that generation. So it, to be fair, previous generations didn't have the writing on the wall, so to speak, in the way that we do and in the way that it's continuing to, uh, to increase. So, so what does that preparation look like? Uh, you know, we've talked about this a, a number of times in uh, these sessions, but that term when Jesus said, watch and pray, I'll, I'll say it this way in, in the most succinct way. We all need to have great understanding of what the heck he was talking about when he said, watch and pray. We need to understand it and then embody it. And let's recognize it probably means a little more than nothing if it's the consistent uh, admonition of Jesus in how to get ready for his second coming. It probably needs to be more than, oh, you know, just keep being a Christian. It's, it's got to mean something more than that. So I think we all need to go on the journey of what did he mean when he said watch and pray? Watch what? Pray how? Pray at mealtime? What did he mean when he said pray? What did he mean when he said watch? And recognize that if you're talking about the end of the age, the most important generation, the biggest generation, the wrap-up, the culmination generation, the response of watch and pray is probably going to be closer to all-consuming than a little bit of salt on the meal. And so we need to go on the journey of what does it look like to watch and pray. And, and I think that that's what the call to this generation really is. So great, great question. All right. Uh, Caitlin. So how do we reconcile God's wrath and God's love and mercy in the same man? How do we reconcile? How is all of that love? So um, if someone was in front of me mistreating my wife, in front of me, it would be inappropriate for me to allow that to go on indefinitely. And depending on the type of mistreatment, the right thing would be eventually to deal with that situation and to deal with it in a way that is very loud in defending her honor. And what we need to recognize is what's occurring at the end of the age is this idea that we are preparing for the wedding of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, will never have been so mistreated, so uh, poorly dealt with, so misunderstood, so maligned, so martyred, as in the time period just before the second coming. So you're not, in a, in a sense, you're not talking about people anymore. You're talking about animals. They're animals and what they're doing to the bride of Christ. When people take the mark of the beast... They, train, they, they change over into something else. You've heard me say this before, and I, I really ask you, I like it, and I ask you to grapple with it and to grapple with how right or how wrong of an idea this is. When someone takes the mark of the beast, it's like they are receiving salvation of Antichrist. They are receiving the spirit of the Antichrist. They are getting saved into the beast. And then all that being saved into the beast means... 
This is not a light transaction. It's not a mark on a hand only or a mark on the forehead. They are, uh, they are assessing the situation and promising worship and allegiance to the Antichrist and to Satan. They, this, you can't do that. That's not okay. And so when we're talking about the judgments of God, the wrath of God, it's actually because of God's love that he must respond with that wrath to those that have been so mistreating the one that he loves that has been so committed to him and so faithful and so loving and so adoring, tested in the hardest times. And the greatest amount of testing for the church isn't coming from God or the world or creation's grown. It's coming from those guys and those gals that have taken the mark of the beast and they've gotten saved into Antichrist, if you will. Jesus is coming to deal with that. And so the subject of God's wrath, we need to understand with that lens. So then you go, so the church isn't going to go through that wrath. Of course not. No. (laughs) The wrath is aimed at those that are aggressively trying to kill God's wife. So God is standing up for his wife and saying, no more. And so it's actually the same love that's motivating all of it. So great question. Last one guess we'll see. Uh, So the question is, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to be bright. Uh, He's going to be so bright. Are there, the question in all seriousness is, are there going to be any shadows? Yeah, I I think that there will be because even the brightness of light, we know it's, it's coming from the new Jerusalem. So the new Jerusalem, uh, imagine as kind of a picture, the new Jerusalem will just, if it's a box, if it's a, it's a, like an actual box, that box would just fit inside of the moon. So imagine the moon like on the earth or really, 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 really close to the earth. If you're on the other side of the planet, that moon isn't touching you the way that it's touching you if you're, you know, right underneath it or a couple of countries away. And so there will be room for shadows in that in the most broadest sense. So now if you're like, do shadows exist during the millennial age under Jesus' leadership? Yes. How many shadows? I don't know. A lot. Who knows on that one? Uh, but but I, I will say this. There are enough verses, which it might be a fun study. There are enough verses that talk about the contrast of darkness and God using that contrast in, in real life and that being valuable in the created order. And so, you know, not just like dark is Nighttime is bad. I mean, that, that's not, nowhere did God say nighttime is bad. And, and so, uh, so the concept of darkness, existence, and shadows, I think, uh, has a place. So good. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.